0: Good morning, church. Happy New Year's Eve. If This is your first time visiting us this morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the elders here. And make sure you come back next Sunday to hear a real pastor speak. Um, We are going to be in Jonah today. So I do highly encourage you to open your word and get there or get there on your phone. I also highly encourage one of these hard copies if you don't have one. I'm sure our church would be happy to give you one. So we are going to go through the book of Jonah. I will give an overview, and we'll just go verse by verse. Through the book and I'll provide some mini lessons throughout and then we will end with kind of three major takeaways that'll be our time this morning so Jonah is one of the shortest books in the Bible it's only about a page and a half probably in your word it'll take you five to ten minutes to read so if you haven't read it I do highly encourage you to do that today uh, first let's just start with some background so uh, this is a nice way to remember the story of Jonah it's a mirrored story so there it kind of repeats itself Um, So it starts with Jonah's commission and his rebellion, then then Jonah and the pagan sailors, then Jonah's great discomfort and prayer of distress, mirrored by Jonah's recommission and his compliance, Jonah and the pagan Ninevites, and then Jonah's minor discomfort and his prayer of anger. It's a a handy way to remember the story of Jonah in that mirrored structure. So is the story of Jonah true? Um, it is the original whale of a tale. It's probably where we get the phrase. And, uh, and I have a, fr- a friend, a believing friend, who, who jokes that, that on his bingo card, Jonah holds the spot for the least likely to be true. Um, but I do think the story of Jonah is true. Uh, but first of all, Jonah is, why, why would we think it's not true? So it is about a prophet who decides to run from God rather than obey God, um, and even rather die than do God's will. It's about a giant fish swallowing someone and then someone living in that fish for three days and then being spit out. It's about an entire city of wicked pagans repenting over a five word sermon. It's about plants blooming and dying in a day. It's loaded with irony. Everyone in the story does the opposite of what you would expect them to do. And it even has some good sarcasm. So, Joan is one of those stories Um, that's very interesting. But a few, moments, a few comments on its veracity, because I do believe the story of Jonah is true. First of all, it's written as historic narrative prose, which means the author wrote it seemingly with the intent that we understand it as history. There's no insinuation in the book that it's contrived in any way. Second, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we hear of Jonah. He is a real character in that book, and he makes a prophecy in that book that the, kingdom of, the northern kingdom of Israel would expand under Jeroboam II, and that's exactly what happens. So Jonah's a real character in, uh, that lived at the time of Jeroboam that made a real prophecy that was fulfilled. And then thirdly, and most important, Jesus spoke as though the story of Jonah were true. In Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, Jesus directly compares himself to Jonah. I'm sure many of us already know how. And uh, this is the only Old Testament character that Jesus directly compares himself with. And so if Jonah's a fable, then maybe Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't have to be as real as, uh, as we think it might be. So which is harder to do, for God to keep someone alive in a fish for three days, or for someone to resurrect someone from the dead after they've actually been dead for three days? The Bible is full of miracles more uh, crazy than what happens in the book of Jonah, and, uh, and so I'm inclined to believe that it's true. In fact, Jesus says that the men in, in Matthew 12, he says that the men of Nineveh did repent and that they are in heaven now. So because Jesus said it, I'm very comfortable believing that this story actually happened. All right, let's get to Jonah. So what is the main point of the book of Jonah? If you hear nothing else this morning, the main point of Jonah is that God's mercy is not just surprising, it is astonishing. It is truly shocking, and that this mercy should change the way we view and the way we do everything in life. That is the main point of Jonah. So let's get right to it. If you haven't yet, please do open your word to Jonah. I'll start in chapter 1, and again, we'll, come th- we'll just walk through the book, and I'll provide some mini-comments and mini-lessons throughout, and then we'll end with a few big lessons. So chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Let's pause right there real quick. So Jonah, or Yonah in Hebrew, means dove. That's what his name means. That's what he was. And in Genesis 8, the first time we hear that word Um, it's in relation to the flood, and the dove brings the peace, right, after the flood. The dove symbols uh, God's rest from his wrath in the flood. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus tells us to be as innocent as doves, so without sin, pure and holy. And then finally, in in all three of the synoptic gospels, um, Jesus uh, connects the dove with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Jonah was supposed to be. Jonah was supposed to be a peaceful someone who brings the Spirit or brings God. And then Jonah's father's name is Amittai, which means truthful in Hebrew. So Jonah is supposed to be someone who brings truth and peace to the world, which he does not exemplify at all, but ironically he does fulfill through his actions and the repentance of the Ninevites. And so a brief comment, one of my soapboxes, for, for those of you that do not have children yet, names matter. So give your child a name that matters and that you can pray over them. So chapter one, verse two, God tells Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So let's learn about Nineveh a little bit. Nineveh was one of the largest cities on earth at the time of Jonah, and it was the capital of the Assyrian empire, which about a hundred years after the book of Jonah, the Assyrians end up conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. So a great world power here. In Genesis 10, Nineveh is founded by Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior on the eastern bank of the Tigris, and the Ninevites were steeped in paganism throughout their history. Maybe the most important thing I want you to know about the Ninevites this morning is that they were known for their brutality and their torture methods. Ancient writings and archaeological evidence tell us that they flayed their victims alive, they hung their skins on city walls, they burned alive the children of those that they conquered, they cut off all kinds of body parts of their victims arms, feet, you know, hands, tongues, noses, ears. They gouged out eyes. They impaled live victims on stakes. They cut the heads off of their victims and they displayed them on trees around the cities and they made pyramids of them. So these are the Ninevites. This is who God has told Jonah to go preach to and to tell them that they are wicked and they must turn to God. Those gruesome tactics by the Ninevites were meant to put fear in the hearts of all those around them and no doubt they did and I mentioned how they ended up conquering Israel about 100 years after Jonah. The Assyrians were the original terrorists, and Jonah was rightfully hesitant of going there. It would be like God asking you to go to Gaza and preach to Hamas today, or to go to Lebanon and preach to Hezbollah, or to go to Pakistan and preach to the Taliban. Would you go and do that? God demands obedience regardless of the outcome. He doesn't tell Jonah what's going to happen. He doesn't promise that the Ninevites will repent. He doesn't promise that they won't kill him. He just tells him to go preach to the Ninevites. Would you be willing to take that journey? Um, I tell you, I, I would be very hesitant too. I would need some wet fleeces followed by some dry fleeces. I would need a lot. Um, and so we need to understand that, that Jonah is rightfully uh, concerned to go there. But let me lower the stakes a little bit for us in our day and age. Would you just be willing to go talk to your neighbor? or your coworker about Jesus and leave the consequences to God, even if they might think you're stupid or they might not invite you to the next party. Who is God calling you to reach out to and to leave the consequences in his hands? All right, let's move to chapter two, uh, verse three here. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So we hear of Jonah running from the Lord twice here. So where is Tarshish? So on the map here, um, you can see that little red dot that says Gath-Hefer. That's where Jonah is from, here in uh, the middle of Israel. And he is told to go about 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, which is in modern day uh, northern Iraq. And instead, he heads straight west. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is. There is some evidence that it is on the southwestern uh, side of Spain. It could be that far away at minimum, Tarshish is far west of Israel in the Mediterranean. And that's the point. Jonah decided to go directly west when he was told to go directly east. And uh, and this is, unfortunately, as absurd as this sounds. And even in verse 9, we hear that Jonah says, he acknowledges that God made the sea and is in control of it, yet he decided to run from God on the sea. So those, those actions are just absurd, and that's what we're supposed to see in this. And, and throughout Jonah, throughout the book of Jonah, his actions are absurd. And again, everyone in Jonah does the opposite of what you would expect them to do. But what we're supposed to do in the book of Jonah is find ourselves in that book. Because all of us have gone the exact opposite direction of how, where God has called us. And so the question for us today is, how are you running from God? Where has he called you to go, and you have turned your back to that? What arena of your life are you pretending that you can hide from him? How are you rationalizing your behavior? No doubt Jonah rationalized this flight. Everything is laid bare before God and he knows. So Jonah, full of ironies and reversals, decides to run from God. Let's move to verse 4. I promise we'll pick up. It'll pick up. Uh, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Okay, so just a quick mini lesson for us here as well. Um, Jonah's flight does not just affect him. Jonah's turning from God and his disobedience affects all of those around him. And that's true for us too. So how might your disobedience, if you are in disobedience, be damaging the lives of those around you? So, Another reversal here that we see after he, you know, the sailors are are fearful, and they try to find out who uh, is responsible for this storm at the sea, and they cast lots and everything. We see that the sailors show far more reverence and fear for deities, including Yahweh, the God of Israel, than Jonah does. The sailors cast lots; they find out that it's Jonah's fault, and then after Jonah admits that it is his fault that he's running from God on the sea. Uh, and that God made the sea and is in control of the sea. The sailors don't just kill him. They try to lighten the ship. They throw over the cargo. They pray. Um, They do everything that Jonah should be doing in this moment, and that's another one of the ironies of the book, the pagan sailors pursue God while Jonah doesn't. So um, they lighten the ship, and they try to try to save everything, and, but they still can't. The storm is too great because God is in control of it. So eventually, Jonah tells, him to throw, Jonah tells them to throw him overboard, and they do. And the Lord provides a great fish that saves Jonah's life. But this was undoubtedly a horrific experience for Jonah. But this is, this is another important point for us, that God oftentimes saves through the most harrowing experience. And some of us in this room can attest to that, that we finally came to God when we were at the bottom of the barrel, at the end of our rope. And that's where God has to take Jonah. God has to take Jonah down to the port of Joppa, down to a ship on the sea, down below deck, it says he goes on the ship, then overboard and down into the sea, and finally down into the belly of a fish. This whole book from the beginning till now was Jonah going down, 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 down. And finally, In the belly of a fish, he cries out to the Lord. But again, the lesson for us is, what might God be doing in your life if things aren't going the way you want them to be going, to be crying out to you, be calling you to come back to him? Don't push him away. Come back today to your father. So in chapter 2, we see Jonah's prayer. And I won't go through his whole prayer, but just just a few comments on the prayer uh, in in the belly of the fish. He calls his new accommodations Sheol, which Sheol to the ancient Israelites meant the realm of the dead. So he's basically saying that he's dead at this point, and he is as good as dead, honestly. Now, the word Sheol comes from the Hebrew word Sha'al, or Sha'al, and we've just been studying 1 Samuel, and uh, you may remember Chris said that Sha'al is the name of Saul, and it means to ask or to inquire. And so that's the connotation that, that Sheol has, It has the connotation of this place where God inquires of you, and place where everything is laid bare, where finally everything is seen and God knows you deeply for who you are. And so that's the connotation we should have with the realm of the dead and the afterlife, is everything is laid bare before God in that place. Um, Are you ready for that day? Hebrews 4.13 says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, to whom we must give account. So again, this is how far God had to take Jonah, but this was a mercy. It was another mercy that God gave Jonah to take him that far into the bottom of a sea in the belly of a fish because he finally cries out to him there. And by definition, whatever it takes for God to wake us up is a mercy. So in verse seven, at the end of his rope, literally, Jonah finally cries out to God. He says, when my life was ebbing away, he says that he will make good on his vow in verse 9. And then, just an amazing thing I want to point out at the end of this prayer, uh, the very last statement of this prayer, you'll see in your, in your Bible, it says, salvation comes from the Lord. You should underline that or make a note in your Bible. It says, the Hebrew there is Yeshua Ta Yahweh. What does that mean? Yeshua. That's the name of Jesus. Ta means from, and Yahweh, we know Yahweh is the name of God. So G- Jonah right here, he just says, Jesus is of God at the last line of his, his uh, prayer. All right, so because of this uh, somewhat repentance, we'll, we'll, we'll debate how much Jonah actually repented, but because of his willingness to, to do what God said and his cry of distress, uh, ju- the, spit, the, ju- the fish spits Jonah out. So in chapter three, now verse one, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And just pause there and say, thank God our God is a God of second chances. He gives Jonah a second chance. He did not need to do that. So, in verse 3a, God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed. So important. Jonah did obey. But we do find that he doesn't do it with joy. He does it with what we call perfunctory compliance. Because he has to because he's at the end of his rope, and he's crying out, and he'll do anything to get out of that fish. Uh, but he does end up obeying God and going to Nineveh. Now, let's go to, chap- let's go to verse 4. The sermon that, that Jonah gives to the city of Nineveh seems to be very brief. Now, we don't know if he said more, but this is what's documented. All this documented is he says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I want to focus on the word overturned. That word overturned is the Hebrew word hafak, which means to overturn, like a calamity, to destroy something. But it can also mean to overturn in a positive sense, to change. And back to uh, 1 Samuel again, Um, when uh, Samuel anoints Saul as king, what he does is he anoints him with oil, and then he says in 1 Samuel 10.6, he says, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will be changed into a different person. That's obviously a positive connotation that Samuel gives about Saul's changing his turning. That word "changed" is the exact same word here when Jonah says overturned. So it can have positive or negative connotations. And so I believe what God is using here is kind of a, a double meaning. First, it's a threat. It's certainly a threat that Nineveh will be overturned if they don't repent of their wickedness. But it's also a prophecy that God is giving to Nineveh that they will be changed because they do change when they do repent. So... We see in in chapter 3, verse 5, that the Ninevites do repent. It says they believed in God. And they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is one of the most remarkable verses in all the Bible. This is the largest single documented repentance of a people in all of Scripture that has yet happened. There's prophecy, I think, of greater repentance in the future. But, um, But again, It says there's over 120,000 men in Nineveh. So there were hundreds of thousands of people here that turned back to God. Now, how can this be? This seems entirely implausible. Well, maybe a couple of things from history. This is minor speculation. But we do know that um, when God sent uh, Jonah to Nineveh, it was somewhere between 780 and 740 BC. And during this time, Assyria was raided by its northern and western neighbors the Arartians and the Arameans. And they gained a lot of ground, these tribal uh, people groups north and west of Assyria, and they had pushed the Assyrian border all the way to within 100 miles of the capital, Nineveh. There were also insurrections in the kingdom at this time. There was widespread famine at this time in Nineveh, and there are two records of plagues that broke out around this time. Finally, there was a strange solar eclipse that's documented. So there's all these things that we learn from history about what's going on in Nineveh around the time Jonah came. And so I, I feel comfortable saying that God was humbling the hearts of the Ninevites before Jonah even got there. God was breaking them down through their enemies, through nature, through all kinds of things to show them that they weren't in control. And I think God is, is working in the lives of those around us in countless ways. He's real, he's present, and he's active and being broken can be the best blessing of your life if it takes you to the feet of God. So you have no idea what God is doing in the, in the lives of those around you. Don't assume that he's not working in those around you, even those that may scorn God. But ultimately, whether we find, you know, historical corroborating evidence that, uh, you know, the, what was happening around Nineveh was breaking them down and, and humbling them, the bottom line is that any repentance is a miracle brought about by the Spirit. And this is just one of the biggest miracles in Scripture in terms of repentance. It's amazing. And in verses 5 through 10 of, of uh, chapter 3, we see a picture of true repentance. We see the Ninevites fast. We see them put sackcloth and ashes on. We see them calling out urgently to God. We see them giving up or repenting of their evil ways. Um, and even their violence is specifically called out. Remember, I told you how violent the Ninevites were. In verse... Um, In verse 8, it says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And so they do. Um, And this is reminiscent. uh, Oh, and even one more thing they say is that they acknowledge that they have no rights. They say, who knows? Maybe God will relent. And that is exactly the posture of repentance. That is exactly the posture of humility that brings you to repentance. Is to say, who knows? I deserve nothing. All I know is that I deserve wrath of God. And it's exactly the same thing that uh, you know, Jonathan said with his, to his armor bearer in First Samuel again when they went to fight the Philistines. He says, who knows? Maybe the Lord will give them into our hands. He didn't presume upon God. It's also the same thing that David said after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and they were having a, a child and Nathan confronted them and said, your child will die. And David went and, and he fasted and put on sackcloth and he says, who knows? Maybe the Lord will save my son, which the Lord didn't. Again, it's a posture of, I deserve nothing, but I'm crying out to the Lord. This is true repentance. All right, so that's amazing. God's mercy is amazing. Now let's move back to Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Can you believe this? Can you believe that Jonah, after witnessing this, he doesn't killed, he's treated. For all we can see, fine, he isn't harmed, he sends God, God's message, and God brings about repentance, and Jonah is upset about it. Can you imagine that? Well, unfortunately, I can, because I have enemies that I don't really want to have good things in their life, and I think we all do. And that's what we're supposed to do, again, in the book of Jonah, is put ourselves in his place and say, would we also be potentially upset with our enemies repenting and turning to God? So notice how much of an I prayer this is in uh, in in chapter four. I'll read it, verse uh, one here. It says, "O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a great and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live." How much of an I prayer? Not just an I prayer, but an "I told you so, God" prayer. How many of those prayers do we engage in? Are you blaming God in your prayers? And finally, this is a prayer where he tells God that he knows what's best for him, that it'd be better for him to die now. How many times do we tell God that we know what's best for us in our prayers? This is, this is just the model of a cancerous prayer right here. And instead, we should be doing the exact opposite in our prayer. First, we should be focusing on God, not us in prayer. Second, we shouldn't blame God for our circumstances but we should humbly acknowledge his control over them and his working for our good through them. And finally, we need to humbly recognize that we don't know what's best for us. Only God does. And we should seek for God's will to be done, not ours in our life. So the Lord replies to Jonah. He doesn't ask him. In your Bible, it'll have a little question mark there, but this is a rhetorical question. It's a statement that the Lord makes. He says Have you any right to be angry? And the obvious answer is no, he has no right to be angry. God has done nothing wrong to him. But yet Jonah is angry. So what does God do with all of Jonah's terrible attitude, rebellion? Even after he follows the Lord, he he still doesn't really follow and love the Lord. What does God do? Well, he gives him another mercy in a vine to give him shade, to show Jonah that he does care for him. Once again, God is pursuing Jonah But Jonah's receipt of this mercy only furthers his self-focus. He finds joy in God's mercy toward him in the vine, but still has no joy in God's mercy toward the Ninevites. And he still kind of holds out hope for their destruction, I believe, with the way he's camping outside the city. He doesn't realize that God is giving him the vine to help him see that he's supposed to care about the vine far less than he cares about the people of Nineveh. So because of this ongoing obstinance, God takes the vine away through a worm. God provided both the vine and the worm and the fish. This second provision is just another mercy to show Jonah the darkness of his heart. Jonah is supposed to realize that the removal of this small and insignificant blessing of a vine just pales in comparison to God withholding his mercy from the Ninevites. But again, Jonah doesn't get it. He remains obstinate. And in this, the second time God asks him, do you have a right to be angry? he has the gumption to actually respond to God. He says, I do. I am angry enough to die. That's just crazy. Again, we see Jonah's theatrics desiring to die rather than just recognize and submit and love God's heart for the people. He cannot see God's heart for others because he can only see himself. And again, that's a question for us. Is that the way we're living our lives? How much of our life is just focused on us? So in verses 10 through 11, to end the book here, the Lord says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people or men who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So first of all, What's this uh, right hand, do do not know their right hand from their left? Well, that's just an ancient phrase meaning that they were kind of morally ignorant or foolish. That's what God is describing the Ninevites as. Second, why does God mention cattle? Well, the whole point of this, I mean, you might think that he's mentioning cattle because we should care about animals. And we should. We should care about animals. But that's not the reason God mentions the cattle, I think. I think God is using sarcasm here um, as one deeply... Uh, versed in sarcasm. I I think God is using sarcasm here to uh, point out that Job's concern for the Ninevites is far less than his concern for not just a plant, but also animals. So Jonah's priorities are completely upside down, right? Jonah cared more about a plant than he cared about hundreds of thousands of people. So God brings up animals and said, surely you care about animals, right? And the response of Jonah would be like, yeah, I do care about animals. Well, let me put those next to the men of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh, that's the whole point of this rhetorical questioning that God is putting Job through, to just show him how upside down his priorities are. He exposes his self-centered thought for the absurdity that it is. And so we are left at the end of the book of Jonah with God questioning him, but not yet giving up on him. All the hardships that God has brought Jonah through were not just to reach the Ninevites, but also to reach Jonah. And we're left with a cliffhanger as to whether Jonah will respond and finally understand and embrace God's love and mercy or whether he will remain hard and heart. And the purpose of that cliffhanger, I believe, is so that we can, again, put ourselves in the story and say, how would we respond in that situation? How do we respond today? Do we love the heart of God? Do we believe in his love and mercy for everyone? And do we pursue that? Or are we actually hateful toward our our fellows, uh, especially our enemies? So... Let's end with a few key takeaways from the, lesson from the book of Jonah. So first of all, I want to say it's very dangerous to know about God, but to not embrace him. That is what Jonah represents throughout this story. Jonah clearly knew God. He clearly believed in God. He even quotes God's mercy as one of the reasons he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knows about God's love. But he did not align himself with God and embrace God's heart. God has been speaking directly to him throughout the book. So this should terrify those of us who have been raised in the church who know God, who think we know God, and do the church thing week in and week out, but we don't actually have the heart of God. God is nudging you today. He's poking your heart to say, do you actually love the way that I love? So if you are one of those stubborn believers that has not fully committed your life to him, that knows a lot about God, but has not committed him, please do that today. I implore you. Second, God's mercy is both vast and it is varied. So we saw the vastness of God's mercy in saving an entire city of pagan, wicked, evil Ninevites. Um, And God's mercy is big enough to save anyone no matter what you have done. Again, I I, I guarantee, I would bet no one in this room has done something worse than what the Ninevites did. Again, they were the original terrorists, but God decided to save them. And God wants to save everyone in this room. His arms are open wide, repent today. His mercy is big enough for whatever is in your past. So that's the first thing. But second, God's mercy is also varied and nuanced. So another, maybe the main focal point of the book of Jonah is Jonah and the way God mercifully, doggedly pursues him in nuanced ways throughout this book. God provides a storm, a fish, a plant, a worm, and a wind. He provides all of these things and questions to Jonah, all to try to help Jonah understand his heart and to help Jonah understand how hard his own heart is and to bring him back to God. So God gives and he takes away, and both can be a mercy if we receive it to draw closer to God. And I'm, I am, you know, I am, very aware that that's a weighty statement that God can use everything for His glory and for your good, because there are devastating things that happen happen in this life. But I do believe Romans eight twenty eight that says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So uh, I'll throw in one Bengals reference. I got to do that today. Um, Joe Burrow, you know our, our quarterback. He uh, he had another season-ending injury a few weeks ago, and he. The, the thing he put out on the social media after that second season-ending injury in four seasons was just one quote. It said, thankful for the adversity. Now, he means it with regard to you know that, that injury, but it's true. We should be thankful for the adversity in our lives because it can all be used to teach us things, to draw us closer to God. And no one went through more adversity than Jesus did, so it can help us become more like him. So finally, the third lesson. Jesus is the better Jonah, the true bringer of peace. So we don't get this directly from the story of Jonah, but when we match this with the New Testament and Jesus' life, it's an amazing contrast we get between Jesus and Jonah and what Jonah didn't do, but what Jesus did. So two men were sent on a mission to bring peace to a rebellious people that hated them, but only one, Jesus, faithfully obeyed his father. Remember, Jonah's father's name was Truth, just like Jesus' father is truth. So Jesus came to preach peace and rest to a people that hated him. Instead of running away, he willingly did so. And he went through all of his trials without grumbling while Jonah was full of grumbling. Jesus desired for God's will to be done. He said, let not my will, but your will be done. Whereas all Jonah wanted was his will to be done throughout this story. And he openly showed dissatisfaction with God's will. Jesus desired repentance instead of judgment for those that were rebellious to God, whereas Jonah wanted the opposite. Jesus preached this repentance with hope. He said the kingdom of heaven is near, whereas Jonah just preached repentance with a message of wrath. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. Jesus' anger was directed toward the self-righteous Pharisees who led people to stray from God, whereas Jonah's anger was directed toward God himself. Instead of reception and repentance by foreigners that Jonah got, Jesus received rejection and death from his own countrymen. Then Jesus spent three days more dead than Jonah ever did and was brought back to life through an even greater miracle. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus brings that peace and rest from God's wrath through the Spirit. So that comparison is not a stretch at all, not just because of the obvious parallels, but also, again, because Jesus uh, compared himself directly to Jonah, the only Old Testament character he compared himself to. Jesus is the greater Adam, the greater Noah, the greater Joseph, the greater David, and he is the greater Jonah. Look to Jesus in this new year and learn from his mercy and pursue his mercy in 2024. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we praise you for your word and we praise you for the life of Jonah. Um, help us to find ourselves in his story, to see how we have been rebellious, um, to see how we have run from you and tried to hide from you when that is just impossible and silly. Help us see the absurdity of our actions and to turn back towards you. And most importantly, Lord, help us to embrace your mercy and love for all people, especially our enemies. And let that be our banner for 2024, to love those who don't love us and to show your love to this world. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.